I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. Autumn is definitely in the air here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. There are carpets of cyclamen and colchicum showing off underneath the trees and just a few of our trees, such as a striking euonymus red cascade, are starting to colour up as the temperatures drop. We've just had our late summer show, so we've been getting the most out of the season, but time's moving on and it won't be long until we're into serious autumn bulb planting mode and our autumn festival. Later in this podcast, we'll give you an update on our shows and events coming up in the next few weeks. Plus, we'll visit RHS Garden Hyde Hall to hear how it has become the perfect place to watch birds and a haven for rare wildlife. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of garden advisors who answer questions from our members throughout the year at shows, at gardens and on the phone and by email. And, as our regular listeners will know, once a month the expert team get together to tackle some of your problems on this podcast. So let's hear what's been troubling gardeners this September. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt and we're here to answer some more of your questions. Today I'm joined by our fruit experts, Jim Arbery. Hello. And Bernard Borbin. Hello. And from our gardening advice team, Jenny Bowden. Hello. So the first question. Mr Finch by email has asked, my allotment strawberries seem to die out in the first year. Can you suggest some more reliable ones? Well, do you strawberries just die out in the first year or do you think there's something else going on as well as um, selection? I think maybe something else going on they might be growing perhaps in too wet soil or you know not growing very well that they die out in the first year they also might have been propagated from runners from existing plants and often over a number of years you get disease in particular virus diseases into strawberries and they become less vigorous and you know poorly growing so it's worth starting with good healthy disease-free stock so probably getting rid of those strawberries and starting again preferably in a new place in the garden different soil you should rotate round and not grow them for more than two or three years in one place and if that's become a problem perhaps growing them in containers in grow bags or troughs perhaps might be a better solution the next question is from mr smith from stoke-on-trent although i put grease bands i still have apples full of maggots why is this now bernard um apples and maggots what's the correct way of dealing with those and do grease pans help I think you have to accept that 
you're always likely to have some maggoty apples. Having said that, your grease bands will help to combat the winter moth. And but she's not they're not the only culprits. The other big um, source of maggots for apples are coddling moth, which the grease bands won't combat. So you need to take other steps. The best one um, would be to put up pheromone traps sort of early in the season and keep those going throughout the summer. And that will help to combat your coddling moth in a, as friendly a way as you can get. And Jim, what are pheromone traps? Pheromone traps are traps usually that look a bit like a little tent which have a sticky card in the base and in the middle of that is placed a pheromone lure which is the female pheromone. That traps male coddling moth which fly into the trap and are stuck to the sticky card. So it reduces the amount of damage but not entirely because it isn't trapping females and it won't trap all the males but it should reduce the the problem. And before you bite into an apple, what's the sign that something might be inside? Well, the apple may well have fallen off the tree before you ever get to pick it, but you will find that there's usually a a wound um, in the apple, probably with a little bit of um, frass, chewed up apple. It looks brown because the air's got to it, so it's oxidised. It's a fairly good sign that there's something else living in there. Could you still use those apples? You can still use the apples. They won't store. But if you're careful, if you if you cut round the damaged bit, you'll often find that they've gone rotten in the middle. Um, but certainly if you're cooking your apples, you can cut off the good bits and use them as normal. Our next question is from Andrew Shallow in Kent. My lilac tree has a big branch that appears to have died. When is the right time to chop it off? Should I be pruning it every year? If so, how and when? It's at least 20 years old. Jenny, what would you suggest? Well, obviously we don't know why it's died. That would be another question. Um, But in terms of when is the right time to chop it off, I think when I see that it's dead, to be quite honest. Um, And I think it's important to do that so that if there were any disease there, like verticillium wilt, for example, which is something that may have gone wrong, um, then you're actually getting rid of that diseased branch. How would you find, know if you'd seen verticillium wilt on that tree? Well, verticillium wilt tends to kill branches uh, and the leaves stay on. They literally wilt. It does exactly what it says uh, in the title, um, as opposed to some other diseases where the trees might drop. They just hang there. And also, if you were to scratch the bark somewhere on that dead branch... Um, you'd see a brownish staining underneath the bark and that's usually a good sign that it's verticillium wilt and by cutting out that branch you you can actually sometimes find that it doesn't it doesn't reoccur and it doesn't spread any further and that's the job done so that's a good way of um, of controlling it just get rid of that particular branch back into healthy growth obviously if it's been diseased that's how to treat it but there's other question of what do you do year to year do you need to do much to lilacs no, you really don't. They Obviously, they're quite vigorous growers. So if you really do find that it's outgrown its space and you need to do some slightly more serious work on it, then it would be in the winter, late winter, so that you get a full season for it to recover itself, put on some fresh growth and for that growth to be hardened up before winter comes along. But year to year, you 
don't even have to deadhead. It will flower. But if you wanted a deadhead, be gentle on it because the following year's buds are just, just behind those flowers which have just been blooming for you. We have an email here from Margaret Belshaw from Brightling Sea in Essex. And she says... Can I compost seaweed? Short and sweet, that one. Well, seaweed is basically just organic matter. So it's something that you will rot down and it will make what we would call humus. Yes, it has potentially quite a lot of use if you've got a source of it. But would it go mushy if you compost it on its own or do you mix it in with other things in the compost heap? It's a good question. Yes, it's a bit like grass. If you've ever tried composting just grass, you'll know that slimy heaps are very much That's a That's what I'm wary of. I can just imagine it being a slimy heap. So with this, this is your green material in the equivalent. And green materials need to be mixed with what we term brown materials. And that's things like prunings, cardboard as well, and shredded paper. And typically you want about two thirds of those browner materials to the seaweed, which is your green material in this case. So it's standard composting principles just applied to this new material. Like a lot of compost as well, after a few weeks, it can start to get rather sticky or dry so do consider whether it needs watering to moisten it because that'll help the rotting process and if it all just stops and nothing happens just fork it all out of the bin put in a bit more if it's looking a bit dry and a bit woody with all your other materials put some grass in or turn to a bit of paper as well to even it up push it all back in and it will rot and what about the salt in it? Is that going to be a problem? In most cases, it, it's not significantly high levels to cause a problem. It's even thought of perhaps if you use it on things like asparagus, um, that it can be very beneficial to that particular crop. However, what it also does contain is quite a lot of micronutrients as well. So these are mixed in with the, the both the seaweed itself and the salts. Um, so they can be beneficial in terms of boosting plant growth in the garden. So not high in the major nitrogen um, element. Nitrogen is the, the thing that really pushes green growth. But the, the minor elements, which are things like parts of your chlorophyll, the green bit that makes the energy from the sun, it's going to help boost those kind of little nutrients that do all those uh, essential bits of growing. We have an email from Harry Peacock. My favourite supermarket apples are Jazz and Pink Lady, but I can't find these trees and I want to plant them in my garden. Jim, why might you be struggling? Jazz and Pink Lady are now quite popular in the commercial varieties of apples, but they're what's known as club varieties, so they're only grown by certain fruit growers and aren't available to grow for, for amateur use, so that's why you wouldn't be able to find them. There's also another point there with Pink Lady in particular, it needs a very hot summer to do well. It was bred in Australia and it's unlikely to really reach its full potential in much of the UK. And jazz as well, it, it, uh, as a New Zealand apple, it, it is now grown to some extent in, in, in Kent, but for the country as a whole, it may not be the most suitable, even if you could get it. So I suggest trying other apples. If you go for the more modern style which those are then i'd possibly suggest trying um, red full staff which is another sort of crisp juicy apple well suited to um, the conditions here mrs rooney from liverpool has written to say i'm moving house in october and i want to know if i can take cuttings from my favorite pear plum and apple trees in my old garden to my new house yes apples pears and plums do not actually root easily from cuttings it would be highly unlikely that you'd be able to root them. They're usually propagated by grafting onto a rootstock. 
So that's not that easy to do. So really you've got a choice. If the trees are very young, you could have moved the whole tree, but I suggest that from the inquiry there, they're probably larger. In, in which case, if you know the varieties, then um, buy some new varieties. If it really is a, an unusual variety, there's always the option of getting a nurseryman to propagate it for you for, by grafting. And a number of them will do that for you. You'd send them the material and they would graft, graft the tree in the spring. You'd usually send them the material in the winter. And by the following winter, they would have a tree for you. I, I often find it quite an unusual thing that people go, I want to keep my particular apple. And they know the variety, the cultivar. Um, and propagate it for themselves because in theory every other tree of that cultivar would be genetically identical because they all come from the same original plant and they've been propagated by grafting over the years so I kind of think the shortcut is always just to go and buy a tree if you know the variety of the cultivar as well that's right it is if you're if you're sure of the varieties it's going to be easier to go and buy the variety and it will be it will be the same thing Yes, every Bramley seedling derived from the tree growing in a garden in Sutherland, Nottinghamshire. They're all genetically identical. Make it easy is my vote because you've got so much else to do when you're moving. You might as well do the, the straightforward thing with the apple tree. Yes, it will also be more expensive if a nurseryman has to propagate it specially for you. So cut your costs on moving too. We're getting near to the time of year when it, you can move youngish i say youngish trees wait until the leaves have fallen off dig as big a root ball as you can and then you can take your fruit trees with you they may have been given you as a gift and i suspect this is why people don't want to just replace it with another the same so if you've had that tree gifted to you you can move them but wait until they're dormant and finally, a question from Chris O'Danaha. Tomatoes. Many of my tomatoes are rotten at the bottom. They are different varieties, so what's gone wrong? P.S. What can I do with all the green ones as well? <laughs> well, it is getting getting on in the season now, isn't it? So there is a chance they'll still uh, they'll still get ripe. Um, but the rotting at the bottom now that is usually due to uh, inconsistent water, especially if they're growing in grow bags. It's quite difficult to get the water to the very corners, and basically it's a disorder, and uh, it's called blossom end rot. Uh, literally it is a deficiency in calcium calcium is very immobile in a tomato plant and if that chain of if that stream of water is broken at any time then that's it it's very difficult to to rejoin that stream of water to carry the calcium back up to the plant and um, certainly the big beefsteak tomatoes and the plum tomatoes are quite prone to it the cherry tomatoes aren't so i tend to stick to growing those um, because they're much more forgiving Making sure that you've got consistent water is really going to be the cure for it. It's no good actually giving them calcium. The calcium is there. It's just that they can't actually get hold of it. And it only ha has to happen for a brief amount of time for that, for that for water not to be there uh, for the problem to occur. Uh, they're in, um, you say that they're different varieties. Yes, that, that figures, but they're all still um, classic tomato, uh, quite large tomatoes. Usually the larger the tomato, the more apparent the problem can appear. Lee, and what to do with all those green ones? Well, there's still time to try and ripen them up. Um, now, 
when they're outdoors in the greenhouse, as the days get shorter and the temperatures cooler in September, they're perhaps unlikely to ripen on the plant. And also outdoors, blight becomes a real issue where they will just go brown and mushy and become inedible. So pick them and then put them on a tray on a warmish windowsill, lots of light. Um, You can try also the old ripe banana trick as well if you want to. Um, They give off... um, gas ethylene and that's actually triggers ripening but even without that they will usually ripen on the tray um a lot of people actually make uh, tomato chutney as well which is delicious so if you've ever tried a, a kind of standard regular pickle from a supermarket um it's not too different from texture in terms of the chunky appearance um, but the flavor is rather nice and the longer you leave it i think the better it gets because all those kind of vinegary tastes actually mellow out so i'm quite a fan for keeping it for several years um, in the back of the cupboard uh, despite all the the various things about best before dates as long as it sort of looks tasty and you keep it well um, jarred it should be fine the rhs gardening advice team They'll be tackling more of your horticultural problems in next month's podcast. If you'd like to know more about the plants or topics discussed, there's more information on a huge range of gardening subjects on the advice pages of the RHS website, rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. There, you can also find contact information for the team, plus details of how you can become a member of the RHS, so you can use our advisory service for free at any time of the year. One of the many other benefits of becoming a member is unlimited free entry to all four of our gardens and discounts at hundreds of partner gardens across the UK. Through the year, the RHS Gardens host a variety of events and attractions to inspire and entertain visitors of all ages. Here's a selection of what's coming up in the next few weeks. Join us to celebrate all that's wonderful about trees with the Autumn Festival of Trees and Wood at Harlow Carr from the 29th of September to the 1st of October. And the Festival of Trees is at Wisley as well on the 6th to the 8th of October with expert advice and family-friendly woodcraft activities. Meanwhile, at Rosemore, it's the Real Ale, English Wine and Cider Weekend with displays of garden produce and tipples from across the southwest from the 29th of September to the 1st of October. You can find full details of all these events and many more at rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. Now, to conclude our current series of visits to the spectacular RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex, we step inside the peaceful seclusion of the lakeside bird hide to discuss wildlife. Centred on Clover Hill that rises above the low-lying surrounding landscape, the garden boasts stunning views across the county. Hyde Hall began life in 1955 as a farm and private garden with just six trees. The diversity of habitats that have been developed on the site since its inception and the careful management of the RHS horticultural teams have made it a perfect place for a variety of creatures and a haven for wildlife lovers. My name's Elliot Wagstaff. I've worked here at Hyde Hall for three years and I work out on the outer estate in the woodlands and the meadows and fields. We're sitting in a bird hide overlooking our reservoir which was 
Doug for um, helping us be self-sufficient with water in the garden, but it also plays an amazing role of providing a great habitat for all the wildlife. Hyde Hall's a great place to see birds, um, from things like common songbirds, goldfinches, robins, passerines, stuff like that, to raptors. You could spot barn owls, little owls, kestrels. We've had four species of owls recorded here before and three breeding on site. Um, you could get lucky and spot a marsh harrier or a buzzard. It's uh, not totally uncommon here. In 1998, they, they started planting some windbreaks on the side of fields here at Hyde Hall, um, and they grew really well, and they took off the idea of um, holding a fundraising campaign to, to raise money to plant woodland around the perimeter of the estate and it, it went very well. So since 1998 we've planted 75 acres of woodland uh, around the estate perimeter. It's really transforming into uh, an amazing ecosystem out there. Um, it's getting to the age where we're starting to thin the woodlands out now um, and it's providing a habitat for all sorts of wildlife butterflies, bumblebees, the owls, which I've mentioned. Um, we've found four species of orchid. It popped up in the woodlands around there. We found common spotted southern marsh, pyramidal, and even more excitingly this year, a green-winged orchid has popped up. Since taking it back to a much much more um, relaxed, less intensive management plan, they, they, these wildflowers are reappearing. So, yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, this year we've had a couple of exciting finds. We've had marbled white butterflies turn up and colonise again. We did find one individual last year, but this year we've actually found a colony, which proves they're breeding on site, which is really exciting. And that brings us up to 23 butterfly species on site now, um, which certainly wouldn't have been the case before the society started planting these wildflower meadows and woodlands. It's, it's, yeah, it's testament to the work that's been done and, and it proves it's a healthy, evolving environment with new species turning up as well. I mean, another exciting find was recently, last week, I found a brown-banded carder bee, a bee that's suffered significant declines since the intensification of agriculture um, to find one here is yeah it's brilliant it shows all the wildflower meadows are paying off you've only got to look at the countryside like Hyde Hall is almost like an art, a paradise island in a, a surrounding surrounding landscape um, intensive fields large fields wherever you look and uh, there's just not flowers out there for them so yeah they need these flower rich habitats like what we're looking at now we're surrounded by things in flower with pollen and nectar um, yeah, and it's providing providing a home for them. Last week, uh, some visitors spotted a spurge hawk moth feeding on some euphorbia in the garden. It's the caterpillar that is. I mean, it's it's uh, it's quite a remarkable find. Enough to find the adult moth. It's got some stripes down its um, forex and abdomen, and it's it's got big wingspan. But the caterpillar is really amazing to look at. It's this uh, red and black striped insect with white dots all down there i mean it is it's like looking at a kaleidoscope it is really amazing so yeah it was amazing to have the adult moth recorded but even more so one's come over here found its food plant in the garden laid its eggs on it so yeah really remarkable find thanks for the visitors that let us know about it being there that is the beauty about hyde hall is obviously there's all the amazing ornamental gardens that the gardeners do but you've got the added benefit to be able to stroll out five minutes away and not see anyone you could see a barn owl a brown hair butterfly um, kestrels, buzzards, and come come to the reservoir. Watch birds on the, on in the bird hide. I think it's yeah, it's a really beautiful escape, and you've got the added benefit of all the beautiful gardens on the top of the hill as well. So yeah. RHS Hyde Hall in Essex. 
There's more information about the garden, as always, on our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash Hyde Hall. Plus, if wildlife is your passion, you can find information and links to campaigns and events on the wildlife pages of the RHS website. Find out how to encourage beneficial wildlife into your garden. Read details of events in the upcoming Wild About Gardens Week and much more. And finally, the latest in James Armitage's series of encounters with some of the most unusual plants in Wisley's collections. A botanist from the RHS's science team, James has been exploring the remarkable stories behind some of the seemingly unassuming varieties growing in the beds and borders. In every year there arrives a moment of realisation that summer has had its day. The cosy glow of a kitchen light as dusk settles upon a street, a certain dampness in the air or melancholy on the breeze. But autumn comes with compensations. Along pavements and in town centres, in front gardens and parks, a magnificent rowan tree reaches its zenith, its upright compact canopy heaving with creamy yellow fruit. As the season progresses, these turn amber while the graceful pinnate leaves smoulder red and purple and orange. The tree is sorbus Joseph Rock and it is a mystery. So far as they are known, the facts of the origin of this most popular of small trees are these. Late in the year 1932, that doyen among plant hunters, Joseph Rock, was travelling in northwest Yunnan and here made a number of collections of sorbus seed. One of these, gathered on the 10th of November, he catalogued under the number R23657, pressing a specimen of the parent plant as a voucher. By and by, the seed was sent back to the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, where it was germinated and young plants raised. From these, one was sent to Arches Garden Wisley, where it was received in December 1934. In 1936, the RHS purchased the area known as Battleston Hill from the neighbouring Lovelace estate, and the young tree must have been among the first specimens to be planted there, for by 1941 it was included in a published list of trees and shrubs then growing at Wisley. As an unknown quantity, a fairly inconspicuous spot was chosen for it at the foot of the hill near to where the fence line now runs. However, its good looks soon began to draw attention, and in 1950 a sprig of the tree was put up for award at an RHS show. The number R23657, under which it was shown, was followed by a question mark, which was also to be found on the metal tag accompanying the tree in the garden. Were there then already doubts as to its identity? It received an award of merit, and material was sent to Kew for an identification. Nothing could be found to match it in the Kew herbarium, though the name Sorbus foliolosa was tentatively suggested. What made the puzzle all the stranger was that the young tree clearly didn't match the specimen of R23657 that Rock had pressed in Yunnan and which was held in Edinburgh. In November 1962, almost 30 years to the day since Rock made his collection, the Sorbus was given a first-class certificate, the highest award the RHS could bestow. The horticultural potential of such an ornamental tree was obvious and the pressure increased to establish its identity. What could account for its unique appearance? Had Rock collected fruit from a hitherto unknown species of sorbus and somehow mixed it in with his other collection? Had there been a confusion at Edinburgh resulting in the wrong plant being sent to Wisley? Or could there have been a switch at Wisley itself? But if so, what was this strange and elegant cuckoo that had usurped the original plant? The herbarium specimen at Edinburgh of R23657 has now been identified as sorbus mombigii, 
and one expert has put forward the view that the mystery tree represents a hybrid between this species and another more common rowan named Sorbus commixta that must have occurred at Wisley as a chance seedling followed by the death of the parent whose position in the garden it took over. Perhaps it is so. In 1964, with no botanical name forthcoming, the cultivar name Joseph Rock was given to the tree, providing it with a name under which it could be retailed. Since then, it has sold in its thousands and taken its place among the most valuable of garden plants. Today, the original tree, from which all others have been propagated, seems to teeter on the edge of the garden, pushed and harried by more vigorous vegetation, its long limbs upstretched uncomfortably to the light. It seems, for a once striking and handsome specimen, an undignified state of affairs to have arrived at, yet something of the glamour and mystique of its past still clings to it. It may not have many years left. Sorbus are not long-lived trees and Joseph Rock has shown a marked susceptibility to fire blight. Doubtless when finally felled, it will take its secrets with it to the grave. James Armitage you can find illustrations, photos and more information about James's plant encounters on our website. There, you can catch up with any previous parts of the series you may have missed. See rhs.org.uk forward slash Wisley Plant Encounters. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter or like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all here at Wisley, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.